Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton of Multipolarista, and today I have two great guests who are involved in the movement for peace in Korea. And we're going to be talking about military exercises that the U.S. military and the South Korean military have been holding in late August and the beginning of September, simulating war with the North. These, these exercises are, are called the Olchi Freedom Shield military um, exercises, and they simulate war with the North. They simulate decapitation strikes that include the murder of North Korea's leader. And there have been large protests in South Korea against these military exercises. These are the largest drills in four years. So we're going to talk about the political situation in South Korea. Uh, there's a new president who's a very right-wing president who replaced the previous more left-leaning president, Moon Jae-in, who had trying to, tried to pursue a peace process. So we'll talk more about the, the political situation in South Korea in a second. But I want to introduce the two guests that I'm, I have the privilege of being joined by today. Um, first is Echo, Hyun's, uh, who Echo is also um, known by Hyunsuk Elizabeth Cho, popularly as Echo. And Echo is an organizer with Women Cross DMZ. And we're also joined by Colleen Moore, who's the advocacy director for Women Cross DMZ. And they also both work in the campaign Korea Peace Now. Um, they're at the forefront of the peace movement, calling for the end to the U.S. militarization of South Korea and peace and reunification of the Korean Peninsula. The U.S. has had thousands, tens of thousands of troops in South Korea for decades. Still today, the U.S. has 28,000 U.S. troops. So, Echo, I want to begin um, overviewing these large protests that happened in South Korea in the past few weeks. They didn't get very much coverage in mainstream corporate media. If you only read, you know, U.S. media, you would think that that in South Korea, these protests are either minor or non-existent and that most people support these military exercises, which are very provocative against the North. So can you talk about these protests that didn't get much coverage and how the South Korean people feel about these military exercises? Yes, thank you so much, Ben, for inviting me um, for an opportunity to share Korea peace issue with your audience. Um, I'm Echo. I'm the coordinator of activism and special campaigns of Women Cross DMZ and also Korea Peace Now Grassroots Network DC chapter coordinator. Um, I could give a brief background on the Ulchi uh, Freedom Shield exercises that recently went on in South Korea. Um, regularly, U.S. and South Korea have conducted joint military exercises that prepare for and rehearse war with North Korea. And the two major war drills are held in March and August every year in South Korea. Um, the Ulchi Freedom Shield exercises are the largest joint military exercises held between the U.S. and South Korea in the past five years. This August, the war drill lasted for 11 days. It ended just past Thursday. Um, the military drills include the resumption of field training re involving thousands of trips, troops, as well as live fire exercises. So since 1954, one year after the Korean War temporarily stopped, the size and scale of these exercises have grown steadily. Um, and as Ben, you mentioned earlier, some of the exercises have included preemptive strikes and decapitation measures against the North Korean leadership. And they have been involved uh, with the use of B-2 and B-52H bombers, which are designed to drop nuclear bombs um, and nuclear power aircrafts carriers um, in, in submarines. 
So when Moon Jae-in and Donald Trump held their leadership summit in 2018, it was decided that these war drills be suspended or at least scaled back in order to advance diplomacy with Pyongyang. But after South Korea President Yoon Song-yeol took office in May this year, Seoul and Washington agreed to normalize and even expand the, the war drills. Um, the U.S. and South Korea claim that the war drills are defensive in nature, uh, but while meanwhile, North Korea sees the drills as rehearsal for invasion, and these military exercises have long been a trigger point for a heightening military and political tension on the Korean peninsula due to the scale and provocative nature. Um, so the recent uh, protest, uh, because it was the 77th year of the Independence Day on August 15, 2022, there was a large protest that was held in Seoul. About 60,000 about 6, people participated and marched um, on August 13th, right near the Independence Day holiday. Um, I gathered some pictures for the audience to see um, because maybe some of the me American media wasn't covering a whole lot. So I dug up some pictures from social media from the organizing um, groups uh, that held the uh, rally. So there were uh, this one major rally was held in Seoul, Seoul but uh, there were 100 cities in Korea and international um, with the major Korean population like Washington, D.C., Paris, um, they organized rallies in different cities uh, around similar date. Uh, we had July 27th Korean Armistice rally um, in D.C. And there were some other, I know Paris uh, Korean community had one. And Paju near the DMC held a separate rally. So there were many different uh, cities holding different rallies in smaller scale. Um, who participated uh, in, the, in the rally? Um, like NCCK, National Council of Churches in Korea. It's a well-known Christian ecumenical organization. Um, and uh, Comfort Women Advocates and women's organizations participated. Uh, major union and labor workers led some rallies and the reunification organizations and progressive political parties and students, the college students, civil organizations. Um, and civil society in general, they all participated. Um, and there were even small dedicated groups holding a daily rally from August 22nd to September 1st while the war drill was going on. Um, it was the first major protest since the Yoon Song-yeol administration came into office. So with the disapproving of his leadership, I think a lot more people joined um, to, to show to show support um, and to uh, share their grievance. Um, there were people demanding that U.S.-Korea-U.S. military exercise be stopped, um, that there is no U.S.-Korea-Japan alliance. Uh, Yoon is emphasizing U.S.-Korea ties and um, it seems to be joining um, South Korea seems to be joining U.S. policy on isolating China, and South Koreans have this uh, have uh, experienced already during 2016, 2017 that 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 crisis. How this has um, created negative impact on the South Korean economy. So the main chant of the rally was "Stop uh, War Drills," but also um, 
anti-America and regaining Korea sovereignty has been still um, strong and has been resonating with the public. So I'll stop there. Yeah, well, um, thank you for giving that great overview. I mean, it's, it's so important to show a lot of these photos and to show some of the chance that people had, because like I said, this gets almost no coverage in, in Western media, especially English language media. Um, Echo, can you, can you talk about the general South Korean public's view of these military exercises and of this alliance? You mentioned that there were these chants, stop the U.S.-Korea-Japan alliance. This, of course, you mentioned is a, a protest that was organized by many progressive sectors of society. What, what is the overall public's view of the presence of 28,000 U.S. troops that ha haven't left since the 1950s and these these war exercises that can only be seen by the North as provocation and a threat? So um, many of the older generation, they had the sentiment that, oh, we're grateful for U.S. U.S. fought alongside with South Korea during Korean War. But I think uh, with the um, recent uh, revelation of like Nogunni massacre that happened during Korean War that was revealed in December, December 1999 by Associated Press, um, and there was incident of Meihangni, which was a um, bombing site, U.S. Air Force's bombing site um, that was going on since 1954 uh, for many years. Um, so that have changed a lot of the South Korean sentiment and the public view on U.S. troops. Um, and one more point I wanted to make uh, with this slide is that uh, the public view on the U.S. military exercises have changed before 2018 and after 2018 because of the Trump-Kim summit in Singapore um, and that Korean people are becoming more critical of the military exercises um, because they're hopeful. They were more hopeful that the Korean would actually end after the leadership summit took place in 2018. Um, so uh, going back, Nogunni massacre brought a huge um, uh, protests uh, among the students, among the people in um, early 2000, um, demanding that U.S. troops be be out of Korea and that those people who are responsible for committing the massacre be punished. Meihangni, um, uh, U.S. Air Forces used this these two islet near this village as bombing practice site from 1954 to 2005. And people were injured from the bombing. There were women having miscarriages because of the noise. Um, there were damaged homes. There were average of 11 hours of bombing per day, 700 shootings, and 250 days out of 365, the, the bombing practice went on. Um, there was another incident of these two middle school girls, Hyosun and Misun, who were killed by U.S. tank in 2000. Actually, this year marks the 20th year, 20th anniversary of the of the atrocity. And people were demanding in 2000, um, if there's nobody, because no no U.S. troop was being accounted for uh, for the crime or um, accident, at least. Uh, arrest the tank that killed the girls. Um, 
So I think many people um, now with the new, young generation have more objective views on the U.S. troops compared to the old generation. And those people who live in the countryside near the DMZ, near the borders, they suffer from the uh, the bombings and the, the, the jets flying over two, three weeks during the joint war drills. Um, it's impacting their immediate daily lives. Um, I wanted to share a quote from Yu Young Ko, a representative of Korea Peace Now and a consultant with our partnering organization, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Um, and uh, she's also representative of Korea Peace Now. Um, she recently said in her article, during the nearly 70 decade long armistice, the continual military buildup of high tech weaponry, including nuclear weapons, massive military exercises and hostilities on the Korean Peninsula and in the region are creating a dangerous situation in which even a small, possibly accidental incident can lead to the outbreak of another full-blown war. We cannot and must not make the mistake of repeating the tragedy of another fictional war. Now, more than ever, it's time to bring an end to the Korean War and replace the armistice, armistice agreement with the peace agreement instead of massive military exercises. Very, very well said. Um, I have so many more questions for you, Echo. I want to bring in Colleen here. Um, Colleen, you're involved in, in helping organize solidarity between the South Korean and the U.S. peace movement, calling for an end to war in Korea. The U.S. has been technically at war since the 1950s. That technically has not ended. We did see, ironically, out of all presidents, one of the most absurd, ridiculous U.S. presidents, Donald Trump, did actually come somewhat close to, to you know, um, brokering some kind of peace agreement. Ironically, it was the very same neoconservative war hawks that Trump surrounded himself, like John Bolton, his national security advisor, and his secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, who intentionally killed the attempts at, at peace. But we did see that Trump met with Kim Jong-un and they you know, met at the DMZ and there, was, there were very symbolic gestures moving toward a peace agreement. Now, ironically now, um, well, of course, the Trump administration got close and then Trump's own appointees killed the, any prospects of peace. And now we have a Democrat in the White House and we've seen no change. In fact, we've seen these largest, most provocative military exercises in years now under the Biden administration. So given your work involved in organizing in the peace campaign, do you think that there are prospects for trying to revive that process? And how do you see the differences, if any, between the Biden administration and the Trump administration? Yes, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us on, Ben. So yes, talking about the Biden administration a little bit, you know, we were a little hopeful at the beginning of his presidency because they, when they did release their North Korea policy review, they did acknowledge that past approaches have failed time and time again to address North Korea's nuclear weapons program. And they did reaffirm the Singapore Agreement and the Pen Moonjom Declaration, uh, Singapore between uh, Tr President Trump and Kim Jong-un and the Pen Moonjom Declaration between the two leaders of Korea um, that promised to work toward an end to the Korean War and a peaceful Korean peninsula. But unfortunately, we haven't seen those actions actually meet that rhetoric. And it is 
really disappointing to see that they are continuing to, you know, essentially play the same failed playbook over and over again. And so North Korea condemns these exercises time and time again that are the joint military exercises, um, like Echo talked about, as rehearsals for invasions of its territory. And they've repeatedly called for a reduction or a cessation of the drills. And unfortunately, under the Biden administration, like, again, like Echo said, they've ramped up the military exercises, they've increased sanctions, they're not actually putting anything on the table that would make North Korea come back to the table and pursue negotiations again. And it's very, very obvious, uh, the target of the joint military exercises, Colonel Brandon Anderson, who's the division's deputy commander for maneuver, he said that the drills were not aimed at any one adversary, but they take into account the reason for the USROK alliance. So that clearly means North Korea, and they also allude to China and Russia as well. So from our perspective, limiting or halting the exercises would help reduce tensions on the Korean peninsula. Research does show that the exercises don't deter North Korea. All it does is provoke a cycle of tit-for-tat provocative rhetoric and actions and shows that North Korea does view the drills as a serious threat to its security. So efforts toward reconciliation and cooperation between the two Koreas and between the U.S. and North Korea have failed to build trust because of this vicious cycle of military provocations. And, you know, they were suspended in 2018 because of these historic summits and it led to a range of tension-reducing measures. You know, the DPRK imposed a moratorium on nuclear and long-range missile testing. Soldiers were demining portions of the DMZ, repatriation of U.S. service members, reunion of separated families. We saw progress happening when we suspended the joint military exercises and what could happen when we actually get to the table and talk. But when no deal was reached at the Hanoi summit in 2019, they then resumed the combined military exercises that August. Um, And so they were scaled down 2020 to 2021 because of the pandemic. But it is also worth noting that these small combined trainings have increased significantly. What used to be one major exercise in 2018 became um, more than 150, I believe, smaller drills in 2019 and more than 100 in the first half of 2020. And we've seen what's come out of this. North Korea has since resumed their missile test. Um, earlier this year, they ended their self-imposed moratorium on nuclear and or on ICBM tests, on the long-range test. Um, so without you know, trying something new, establishing new relations, ramping up these military exercises could have disastrous consequences. So unfortunately, we have seen a marked turn from the Biden administration and, you know, the travel ban on Americans traveling to North Korea still remains in effect. There are a range of confidence building measures they could put on the table. And they just continue to say over and over again, you know, the table is open with no preconditions, but you can't just keep saying that without actually backing it up with putting something on the table. Yeah, that, that's very well put. And Colleen, I, I do want to, in, in a bit here, talk about the situation with China, the new Cold War, uh, the step-by-step moves toward integrating South Korea basically into NATO, uh, which we saw South Korea was represented at the NATO Madrid summit in June. So there's a lot more to talk about there. But um, Echo, I want to come back to you. Um, and before we get to the kind of the larger geopolitical situation, uh, because, you know, I could spend all day talking about that. I do want to talk a little bit more about the domestic situation in South Korea, because my impression is that part of this move toward a more aggressive posture against the North 
is reflective of the change in leadership. Uh, you know, previously, uh, it, just until uh, 100 days ago or so, uh, South Korea had a more left-leaning president, Moon Jae-in, and now it has a very conservative president, Yoon Suk-yeol, who uh, at least campaigned um, promising more aggressive actions against China and more aggressive action against the North. Do you think that there are is a very significant difference between President Yoon as compared to President Moon, or how would you say that the situation has changed, or maybe it hasn't? So yes, um, Moon Jae-in, I believe he did, at least uh, on the outside, did um, try to resolve the Korea issue diplomatically. And he is the one who has like ever put North Korean leader and the US leader together in a summit. So he does get recognition for that. But at the same time, um, you cannot ignore the fact that the military budget during his time also increased very much. Um, now, Yoon Sung-yeol, the conservative president, um, his approval rating on his near his 100th day of being in the office was in the 20s. Very, very low ever, like in the, in the South Korean hist modern history. Um, and a lot of people domestically are feeling the uh, domestic issues already, not just international countering China, which is going to create bad economic impact to South Korea, um, pro-US and pro-US Jap Japan alliance, which does not resonate with the South Koreans. Uh, not only apart from that, but he's trying to shut down the uh, the women's the division uh, of equality, a division of women, um, and his domestic policies has been very bad and has not been very popular um, right now. So um, who knows? But if he's going to be taking the position of traditional conservative leadership of South Korea. He is going to be pro-U.S. and he's going to be against reunification. Um, the national security laws still exist in South Korea. He might be actually implementing those and punishing people um, wrongly, like especially reunification activists who work who work uh, for peace um, using the national security law. So it is it is gloomy, gloomy. And and echo what, what you you kind of addressed this earlier with some of like the um, Korean children who were killed or wounded by some of the effects of the the war. Um, you know, uh, this there are people who are still dying seventy years after the war technically paused, although again it never officially ended. What is the impact on average Korean people in general and society of this militarization that has gone on since the 1950s? Uh, what is the impact on society, on culture, on the economy? Unfortunately, I've never been able to go to Korea, but from people I've talked to, they say that it's a it's very militarized society. You can see U.S. troops frequently. Again, there are 28,000 U.S. troops. So so what has the impact been on on Korea? So um, you can see like the immediate environmental harm that U.S. bases are causing because of their U.S. military occupation. Uh, Yongsan became very popular nowadays recently because Yoon Sung-yeol administration wanted to move their office. They have moved their office 
to Yongsan, uh, which used to be former U.S. base. And now they're trying to clean up that area. Uh, with It's been very polluted because it was a military base even since the Japanese occupation. Um, so the soil contamination um, and there were, in 2016, there were around 50 U.S. bases in South Korea. Um, I don't think accurate number was ever revealed because it was kind of kept very secret. Um, and about 90% consolidated into what's now called Camp Humphreys after its, its construction in 2017 and 2018. Camp Humphreys is the largest base um, in the world, maybe outside of the US, maybe there's a larger base in the US, but outside of the US at least is the largest base in the world. Um, in 2020, there's still 12 US bases um, that were being returned to Korea and nine of them had, were very heavily contaminated. And two out of 100 people could get, get cancer if they built houses in those lands and cost of recovery even after the return, it's the South Koreans that would have to be uh, paying for most of the recovery uh, fees. And um, uh, in 2020 and 2021, during COVID lockdown, there were some US military uh, personnel having parties uh, in clubs and they were having beach parties and people were very critical seeing those in the news. When there was COVID lockdown, lockdown, there were less than five people were legally supposed to be gathering and they were having private parties. Um, and the, the environmental impact among US-China power competition would also be leaving a lot of military footprint. Um, South Korea now is the 10th, 10th biggest military spender in the world. Um, and also South Korea joined RIMPAC since 1990. And right before the um, joint military exercises in August, South Korea participated in the US-led RIMPAC uh, maritime war games with 26 countries this year, prior to the Uchi Freedom Shield. Um, and it was, they were kind of bragging how the biggest scale um, of military uh, things were used during the RIMPAC, which is very impulsive, repulsive. Um, so, it, and the U.S. Uh, forces in Korea is still under wartime, has the wartime operational control. Um, and this is being delayed because um, um, part of the reason why Moon continued to conduct these military exercises to demonstrate the South Korea wartime operability, but there has, seems like there is no um, concrete measure on when um, this will, the operation, military operation control will be turned over to South Korea. And uh, as Yoon um yeah, I'll stop there. No, great. I mean, it's so important to talk about the impact of the US military occupation on the people. This is there's a very similar situation in Okinawa. Of course, the US also still has tens of thousands of troops in Japan um, and has had them there since the 1940s. So it's really important to talk about the impact on on everyday people. Um, Colleen, I want to go back to you. Um, you have been involved again, as I said earlier, in organizing um, this peace campaign um, from both the U.S. and South Korea, trying to combine those movements. I think that's really important. Can you talk about some of the recent protests and, and other actions that you all have taken? I do know 
that in, in June there were a series of protests demanding um, you know, peace and, and an end to these militarization policies. What, what kind of actions have been happening? Because, of course, we never see these in the media. Yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah, Echo is definitely more of the expert of the domestic situation in South Korea. But I, I do really see the South Korean public waking up and especially under President Yoon, like Echo talked about. And I think it's also the U.S. of building the political will for a different playbook of, of, uh, with North Korea that I think Americans are finally seeing that what we've been trying for decades has failed. And I think especially from my standpoint, I'm really leading on the legislative work of Women Cross DMZ. And we have over 40 co-sponsors of a bill calling for a formal end to the Korean War. And that's pretty unheard of. Like, you know, 10 years ago, there were only two members of Congress who would speak out at all about these issues. And last Congress, we had over 50 sign on to a resolution. Now we have over 40 on this bill. So yeah, focusing on the, the domestic situation in the US, we have really come a long way. And I think people are making the connections even more so than in the past. And I, I think that unfortunately, the Biden administration is really siding with President Yoon. And I know Echo talked a little bit about this, but he is really trying to um, he, he's trying to do this like peace through force, I think is what he's calling it. It's like normalizing the U.S.-South Korea joint military exercises, forging stronger military ties with the U.S. Um, preemptive strike capability is a possibility against North Korea. The kill chain is what they call it. Um, but overall, he opposes an end of war declaration with North Korea. He believes that North Korea should denuclearize before offering any security assurances, such as a peace agreement, which is a non-starter. I mean, that's what we've tried for decades and it has failed. But he did recently announce an audacious initiative, is what he's calling it, um, that laid out the foundation of his administration's approach to North Korea. Um, so that's been focused on providing economic incentives and security guarantees for North Korea, corresponding to substantial changes from them on their nuclear weapons program, which again, like insisting on denuclearization up front has been a failed strategy, but there may be an opening with it. Um, it includes providing diplomatic support to normalize U.S.-North Korea relations. And so really the priority of the U.S. and South Korea, which again, I think that civil society is really coming around in both the U.S. and South Korea, it really should be to lower barriers to normalize relations, including formally ending the Korean War. There is no negotiated settlement keeping war off the table on the Korean Peninsula. And, you know, active hostilities of the war ended in 1953, but technically we remain in a state of war with North Korea. And you can always trace back the failure of negotiations over the past few decades to this unending state of war. There's been so many times when we've almost reached an agreement and, you know, North Korea comes back and is like, look, I, we're in a state of war with you guys. We can't do something like share the number of our nuclear weapons um, and share other information on our arsenal. It always comes back to that unending state of war is the root cause of these security tensions we're seeing. And without a peace agreement, renewed conflict can break out at any time. So we need to prioritize peace and cooperation over these military provocations. And it's massive that 6,000 people turned out in August. I mean, it's, it's wild that the US media hasn't covered that. But I, I do really see 
that it's it's the power of the of grassroots solidarity that I think are going to stand up to the U.S. and South Korea. And also, as you mentioned, Ben, on the U.S.-China competition, that they're putting countries like South Korea in the middle and people are done and they're and they're standing up to it. Yeah, Colleen, you mentioned these pieces of legislation. I saw Korea Peace Now, which is the campaign that both of you work with, talked about that in June in the U.S., there were a series of protests as part of Korea Peace Advocacy Week. And I know you all have been involved in 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 working with congressional offices to pass the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act and uh, the Korean War Divided Families Reunification Act. Can, can you briefly talk about those pieces of legislation and what the response has been in Washington from your efforts? Yeah, absolutely. So the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act, that's H.R. 3446 in the House, um, there's kind of three parts to it. So it calls for diplomacy in pursuit of a binding peace agreement and then opening of liaison offices in the U.S. and Pyongyang, and then also reviewing travel restrictions because there still is the travel ban on Americans traveling to North Korea. And then we also advocated for two other bills. So one is the Enhancing North Korea Humanitarian Assistance Act. So that is about streamlining uh, Treasury Department and State Department permissions for humanitarian aid to North Korea, because right now it is really tough with sanctions. There's, you know, they say that there's humanitarian exemptions for getting certain aid into the country, but there's so much red tape and it takes so long to get aid into the country. And then the third one is about facilitating reunions of divided families. So those are really what we're advocating for. And it's really just about this larger package of how do we transform relations with North Korea that would eventually add, uh, end up like normalizing relations between the US and North Korea, because that is clearly what is standing in the way of talking about some of these other issues like denuclearization, like human rights. Um, so from our perspective, it's really this package of legislation that we're advocating for. And I think in all of these is inherently, I, I talked about the travel ban that the Biden administration just extended uh, last week at the, at the end of August. And it's really wild that they're continuing this travel ban. Um, that it was a Trump era policy. And so it, it does seem that some legislators are interested in reviewing these travel restrictions. Um, it, in uh, HR 3446, the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act, we have 44 co-sponsors right now, um, which again, like it's, we've come such a long way in the past few years of getting more and more members of Congress to speak out on this. I do think it's still controversial in Washington to talk about a new approach and not a lot of people want to go against the Biden administration. And I think the new president in South Korea, Yoon Suk-yeol, has made it even more complicated. They want, you know, South Korea to take more of the lead on it. And when he's opposing an end of war declaration, it makes the political situation really complicated. But from our perspective, we're really just like, we need to try something new. We can't just continue the same thing over and over again and expect it to work. And I think that argument actually does resonate with quite a bit of congressional offices. And that's where we're seeing some success. Great. Well, I mean, I think the, the people who want to get involved, those are definitely tangible things that you are working on. Um, now I want to pivot a little bit. This is my bread and butter. Uh, I'm interested most of all in the geopolitics. And clearly, we've seen that the U.S. has been pressuring South Korea very hard 
to to recruit South Korea into this anti-China campaign. And I and clearly South Korea and China have had a rocky relationship over the years, although it's not nearly as bad as with Japan, obviously. Of course, China and, and Korea were both colonized by the Japanese empire. So there are commonalities that, that can be found there. But the U.S. is trying to force South Korea to unite with its former colonial oppressor, Japan, against China. And I'm curious, Echo, if you can talk about the popular perception of China in South Korea today. I do know that that the new president, Yoon, that he ran on a campaign a platform that was very anti-China, um, you know, advocating for anti-China policies. But since he entered office, which was around 100 days ago, I, I have read that his policies actually haven't been as aggressively anti-China as the U.S. would have hoped. I think that's probably a reflection of the fact that China is South Korea's largest trading partner. And China also, according to purchasing power parity measurement, has the largest economy in the world. My impression is that he can't antagonize China too much because of its importance for the Korean economy. But I'm curious what you think the popular perception is of China in South Korea and whether or not you think that the Korean people are on board with joining Washington in this aggressive posture and, and new Cold War against China. So, as I mentioned earlier, South Koreans have already experienced the rocky road in 2016 and 2017 when that missile defense system was play, being placed in South Korea. They have felt the economic impact. Um, and that is, I believe, why Yoon Seung-yeol, his popularity has been going down very low because he... Uh, with the recent NATO meetings, etc., he did mention about kind of uh, supporting U.S. on isolating China policy. Um, I think the people in South Korea do see this as not a smart movement, and it's not a diplomatic, wisely diplomatic movement. And one other issue is that U.S., China, and Japan alliance is much, much worse not only countering China, but South Koreans still have very negative sentiment on US, uh, on um, South Korea and Japan alliance. Um, that was one of the things that Moon Jae-in was very popular on, that he was able to stand up himself against Japan. And uh, because of, of that, he's actually rating, his rating is actually uh, plummeting more. Um, and one of the things that he was popular or one of the group that he was popular for his election winning was were people, uh, men in their 20s and 30s. And 70 percent of the people who voted for him in 20s and 30s, they actually reveal that they are disapproving of Yoon's policy. Um, that was the recent um, study done in in July. Um, of his approval rating. So he, I think people are realizing and do see that his policies is not very smart um, and that he needs to do better uh, diplomatically. And do you think that among the public that there is this um, like strong anti-China sentiment that we've seen in other countries? In, for instance, in the U.S., there's this growing anti-China sentiment. Of course, the media is encouraging that. I, I, Of course, I don't read Korean, so I don't know what the South Korean media outlets are saying about China. But basically in the U.S., there's a clear concerted 
and in, and in Western Europe and in Latin America, where I live, there's this concerted attempt to make people hate China. And of course, in Latin America, it doesn't really work. In the U.S., unfortunately, it's been working. Polls show that just a few years ago, there wasn't a lot of negative China sentiment. And now because of all the media posturing and propaganda, there is a strong anti-China sentiment. I'm curious what the situation is like in, in South Korea and especially maybe the role of the media. Um, I believe media is trying to be careful because of the, the market of China um, and how South Korea still number one trading for South Korea is market is, is China. So I believe media is trying to be careful, but I have been recently seeing more on um, attacking some of the cultural issues um, with China, like China claiming that Korean traditional costume was originally from China. Another example, kimchi. Um, there were some like, social media posts that were saying China is claiming that kimchi is their ethnic food. It's not Korean. So I did see some of those posts um, recently. I'm not sure if that is being strategically distributed um, to get the anti-China sentiment, but um, but I think market people who are actually in small vendors in South Korea, especially in Seoul, the tourists, the Chinese tourists that come into Seoul um, and the purchases of the South, the Chinese people make it while visiting South Korea, those are the things that they cannot neglect. Um, and it's very uh, much there that for people to um, be careful in a way. Yeah, and I don't know if you can comment briefly also on um, Russia, because we saw at the beginning of the Western sanctions against Russia that South Korea initially joined in with the sanctions against Russia, although it has taken some some um, steps back away from that recently. And I, and I did see that South Korea recently signed a major nuclear energy agreement with Russia. So I'm curious if you think that South Korea has joined in as aggressively um, in this kind of campaign against Russia as well over the war in Ukraine and what popular sentiment is about Russia. Because of course, the US strategy is to get all of its allies to join in not only against China, but also against Russia. And we've seen that the US failed to do that with India, the U.S. failed to do that with many of its allies, and I'm not sure about South Korea's role. Right. So, uh, as you mentioned, um, South Koreans cannot support 100% on the Russia issue because we do have economic ties, and uh, some of the weapons that South Korea developed was from Russian technology, um, and it our South Korean relationship with Russia is something that we just cannot. Uh, just turn over like that and can ignore. Um, not not like the not like how U.S. people perceive might perceive um, on Russia, um, and there, I believe there has been emphasis, especially on the Democratic Party of South Korea, to stay in the middle and not to be um, like to have uh, our own South Korean perspective, not just. Um, tagging along with other international issues in order to keep our, uh, keep the South Korean um, rights and um, the parts that South Korean um, should be, what, what should be important for the South Koreans. 
Yeah, and of course, South Korea is a major energy importer, and I know that Russia is one of the main sources of energy. So uh, we're seeing a situation with this economic crisis and energy crisis where South Korea is actually being somewhat independent and in, in allowing energy imports from Russia, unlike Europe, which is destroying its own economy. But that's a whole other story. Um, Colleen, as we begin to start wrapping up here in the last you know, 10 minutes or so, I, I want to talk about the situation in Washington. Um, you, you've been involved in you know, pushing for peace. And I mentioned that there are so many politicians in Washington trying to pressure South Korea to join in this campaign against China and Russia. I'm curious what your what your experience has been working you know, on Capitol Hill and trying to get uh, Congress people to, to signed on to support this legislation to end the war in Korea. What kind of responses have you heard, and especially in terms of trying to recruit uh, Korea for this new Cold War on China and Russia? Yeah, I, I definitely see the United States hardline policy. It's treating the people at the middle of this confrontation as pawns in this great power competition game. Like South Korea, they're caught between two powers. Like you've talked about, they can't afford to give up these strong economic ties to Beijing. And so on the Hill, we're really seeing that it's all, they always seem to lump in North Korea with this posture towards China. Um, you know, last year, the, the Pentagon's Global Posture Review called for directing resources toward deterring China and in the same breath, uh, North Korea as well. Um, and also in Congress, there was a huge piece of legislation that ended up collapsing, and that's what became the CHIPS Act. Um, but it was originally the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. And it was intended to improve U.S. manufacturing, but it contained a lot of provisions that would have endangered a peaceful Asia-Pacific and undermined diplomacy. Um, one stated that it is the policy of the U.S. to sustain maximum economic pressure on North Korea until it undertakes denuclearization. Why is this provision in a bill about U.S. manufacturing to begin with? And it ended up just being this massive anti-China bill where both parties were trying to tack on these provisions of, you know, confronting China. And it ended up just being this massive thing that even, you know, people like Chuck Schumer ended up um, not being able to support. So it became the, the CHIPS Act and it collapsed, which, you know, for some of these provisions ended up being good news for us. But really, it's they're really treating it as a zero sum game of a very black and white, and it limits space for cooperation. We do get so many questions when we're talking with Congress about the Korean War and you know, making space for peace of what is the role of China. And unfortunately, this great power competition has limited that space for much needed cooperation between the US, South Korea, China, and North Korea on peace and denuclearization of North Korea and so many other important issues like climate change and pandemic response, we're not actually thinking about what do these actions mean in practice. I mean, talking about Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, China ended up suspending or canceling much needed talks on climate change and so many other things. Is that really what is in U.S. interest is to have talks like this canceled? All it's doing is making this black and white picture that's preventing any kind of progress on cooperation. And we will absolutely need China's cooperation on ending the Korean War as they are one of the parties to the war. And if we aren't able to cooperate with them, you know, this will continue to go on and on. So we really do see that it's a black and white picture that how they treat it. And North Korea is always lumped into this. It's really seen as 
um, I think it was Biden's State of the Union speech right after the Ukraine invasion of, you know, this coalition of freedom loving nations to confront authoritarian nations. And that's that sums it up pretty well of what they're trying to do. They're trying to get coalition of nations to confront Russia, China, North Korea and that that's not how the world works. History shows that that's not how any tough issues are solved. So we we do sorely need their cooperation, and it's it's tough dealing uh, with Congress right now on that. Yeah, I can't I can't even imagine. Um, Colleen, I don't know if you can speak a little bit to this idea of global NATO. I hear this more and more watching these conferences given by like you know uh, these hawks at the Atlantic Council and CSIS and these other very you know, right-wing um, neoconservative think tanks in Washington. They, they, they're they're trying to popularize this idea of global NATO, which I always found like a very strange concept because NATO has always been global. But when they say global NATO, they mean outside of the North Atlantic region. I mean, it's called North Atlantic Treaty Organization, but now Colombia is, is involved in NATO, which is very much in, in the South American region, not North Atlantic. And we saw that in the June Madrid summit that NATO invited Australia, New Zealand, Japan, and South Korea. And actually, I have a photo here. Also, there was a meeting of NATO in April in Brussels. And you can see that South Korea was represented along with Georgia, which is not a member of NATO. So um, President Yoon, the new South Korean president, has said that they're creating a diplomatic mission in Brussels to to integrate at least um, not, not as a member, but to create, you know, this kind of military alliance between NATO and, and Korea. I'm curious what you, if, if anything, if you've, you've heard talk about this in Washington, the idea of trying to integrate the Pacific region, which is the opposite of the Atlantic region into North, into the North Atlantic treaty organization. Yeah. I don't hear too much specifically about this, but it, it is funny that you mentioned like, you know, it's always kind of been global. It's not something that's necessarily new, but I do think it really goes back to this pivot to Asia as the, you know, under the Obama administration. And I think we're hearing even more about it after with the withdrawal from Afghanistan that, like I mentioned, the Pentagon's global posture review, it's very clear that they're directing resources from the Middle East to Asia all with the idea of confronting China and trying to enlist nations um, in this competition with China. And we saw that with Biden's trip to Asia back in May. He really used that trip um, with the uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework of recruiting nations for that as well. Um, and it, it really yeah, goes back to what I said about this black and white picture. So yeah, it's unfortunately not really a controversial thing in Washington. I, I think that this, even if we get champions to support peace on the Korean Peninsula, I think sometimes talking about China is really hard on the Hill because it it is seen that we need to confront China. And, you know, from our perspective, it's like, is that, you know, is addressing human rights in China or, or whatever it is that their stated goal is, is this the way to do it? And obviously it's not. That's not the way to address any kind of cooperative activity that we need to do. So yeah, unfortunately it is not too controversial in Washington. And I don't think it's it's anything too new, but we're definitely seeing a ramping up of it after the withdrawal from Afghanistan and this new pivot to Asia. Well, I want to be sensitive of both of your time. Um, just wrapping up here and, and toward the end, I want to talk 
about reunification. Echo, this is something that you alluded to multiple times. So many Koreans have had their lives devastated by this arbitrary division of their country by foreign imperial powers. It was the U.S. that waged this war that destroyed 80% of the buildings in the North that led to 3 million deaths of Koreans. Something around 20% of the population in the North was killed in this war. The war technically never ended. And many Koreans have had their families divided. And this seems to be that an issue that has massive broad popular support and has had broad popular support for decades. I know no one expected it, but under Trump, there was a move, a, a significant move toward ending the war and peace, which would have, of course, be necessary for reunification. Do you think that with the failure of those peace talks, that reunification is farther away than ever? Or what are the prospects of potential reunification of Korea? The major issue of reunification moving farther and farther away is the current Korean war <laughs> that has been dividing Korea. Unless the war ends, unification, there's not going to be a next step for unification. Um, from the civilian side uh, in South Korea, yes, reunification is a very important issue. Um, the reunification movement, it continues where they're still educating about North Korea, embracing North Korea, that we're not just enemies, we're brothers, same blood, we came from same people, same national, uh, 70 years ago, uh, embracing North Korean refugees or educating the young generation and bringing them, taking them to the DMZ for a tour, being creative. Um, on resolving the conflict and that it's not always military. It doesn't have to be always military and arms race. Um, that is not the way for a peace. Um, that's not a way for a path to peace. Um, South Korean policy, I'm not sure if they're, they really have a roadmap for reunification, but this is something still very dear um, and that just brings the immediate heart um, and tier to many South Korean older generation, even for the younger generation, the word unification is still very much uh, moves our heart. Um, but we need to normalize and end the war before uh, moving on with the reunification. Personally, with the 70 years of division and South Korea and North Korea having different economic systems, um, although we still have same language, many of the cultural aspects are different because um, uh, of the division for the 70 years. So uh, let's end the war first, create peace, and then leave the unification and the roadmap for the unification for the next generation. So please stay um, in connected with us, join the movement to end the war with um, and the war and support the Korea peace. Um, hopefully um, Ben can drop off some links um, after our uh, broadcast on how to stay connected with Korea Peace Now. KoreaPeaceNow.org is our website, WomenCrossDMZ.org's website. You can donate on WomenCrossDMZ.org slash donate to donate with us. Um, you can send me an email if you want to become part of the Korea Peace Now grassroots network. Um, send it to echo at WomenCrossDMZ.org um, and stay connected. Absolutely. I'm going to put links to all of that below in the description. And as, and as we're wrapping up here, um, Echo, can you just explain briefly what Women Cross DMZ is, this group that you've been involved in, 
I know that in the past, I mean, you all advocate for peace in many different ways and educate people on, on the history. But I know in the past, the reason you have that name is that you have organized large protests with women actually going to the demilitarized zone at the 38th parallel and having these protests. So can you just explain what Women Cross DMZ is? Yes, we actually have a film out. It's called Crossings. Uh, maybe there is going to be a showing in the area where you live. We're organizing many, many community screenings right now. Um, it, it's actually a documentary on 2015 Crossing that Women Cross DMZ organizer, uh, our executive director, Christine Ahn, organized. And there were 30 other women um, fem feminist activists who joined the crossing in 2015. Um, so we are a feminist organization working to end the Korean War. It's a global movement um, of women mobilizing for peace on the Korean Peninsula. Great, thank you. And Colleen, we'll give you the final word here. Um, if for people who, I mean, uh, a lot of my audience are people in the U.S., although we have people from around the world, and it's always great to see a very diverse audience um, watching and listening. But for people who want to get involved in the campaign, to encourage peace, especially people in the United States, the belly of the beast, what can people do? Yeah, I think you can go to our website, as Echo mentioned, koreapeacenow.org or womencrossdmz.org, and there's a way to take action to call and email your representative, asking them to co-sponsor the bill that I talked about, H.R. 3446, the Peace on the Korean Peninsula Act. And really, right now, it's about building the political will in Congress to really pressure the administration to negotiate a peace agreement and normalize relations with North Korea. So that's something that if you're in the U.S., you can take action and talk to your representative about getting on this bill. So, yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity to share these action steps. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Um, I was joined by Colleen Moore and Echo, both of Women Cross DMZ and Korea Peace Now. I will put the links to those websites in the description below. I want to thank everyone who joined. It was a great chat. Um, I'm sorry I wasn't able to, to interact a lot with the chat, but I'm going to be doing another live stream next week with ec economist Michael Hudson, and I'm going to, I'm going to um, chat more. I'll, I'll, let's take questions and stuff and uh, interact more with the chat. I do want to thank um, Mi Ling Wee, and I want to thank um, Lavender uh, Eucalyptus, for the super chat support and everyone else. Um, also, uh, Teresa273 and everyone else for commenting. Of course, if you didn't see the beginning of this, you can go check that out. As soon as the stream ends, it'll be up permanently. And then of course, this also will be available as a podcast and you can find that in Multipolarista. So thanks to uh, Echo and Colleen and thanks to everyone who joined me and I'll see you all uh, next week for another one of these. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Thank you.